Don't like a little bit of passion? A little bit of fire in his bones? We're continuing our study on the book of Acts, so take a Bible, the Bible in the pew. I'll give you the page reference. is page 1732. And we are dealing with chapter 22 and 23 of the book of Acts. So that's quite a lot of material that we need to get through this morning. Let's, as we're opening God's Word, let's bow our heads and ask God's Spirit to be with us this morning. Father in heaven, heaven, you want to teach us about how to live this life. And an important part of living this life is to understand spiritual things. And Lord, we're not spiritual creatures. Um, hence, we need to be born again. We need to be converted. And we truly need the work of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis to teach us about you and the things of heaven. Bless us now as we open your word. May your spirit's presence be here and touch each individual. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Last week, as we worked our way through the book of Acts in chapter 21, we saw Paul taking this donation to Jerusalem. This was really important. This was a symbolic gesture on the part of the Gentiles to help the Jews in Jerusalem. And we saw that Paul got um, kind of a little bit of a lukewarm, maybe a mixed reception there in Jerusalem. Uh, some of the leaders were not quite sure what to make of this man, it seems to me. And then he, he took these vows. Do you remember when we went into the, into the vows that he took and the shaving of the hair and quite, quite unusual things, things that maybe we wouldn't expect Christians to be doing so many years after Jesus? But of course, this is what the Jewish people had been taught was important. And when the Jewish, some of the Jewish people saw Paul in the temple, they went ballistic. And if they could have torn him to pieces on the spot, that's literally what those church-going, Sabbath-keeping religious people would have done. Pretty sad, don't you think? Really shows you how we can miss the point. And so God used the Romans' opposition from the Jews. I mentioned that last week. Going to see that again today. And protection and more of an embracing of the gospel from the Romans. So quickly they arrested Paul and put him in safety. So now we're going to pick it up. That's a little bit of the background summary of, of last week. Now we're going to pick it up in chapter... Well, we'll start in chapter 21. Um, Give me a moment here. Chapter 21, verse 37. I'll just quickly go through this. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Now, the commander doesn't understand why this crowd is so antagonistic to this man. He, he hasn't got a clear answer to that question. Do you speak Greek? He replied. 
Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt, laid 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Now, when, peop, when a crowd, when you have this crowd frenzy, I think it's a little optimistic on Paul's part to think that he could get them on his side, don't you think so? But they do seem to quieten down when he speaks. So having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd, and they were all silent. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to what? Listen now to what? I can't hear you. Anybody in church this morning? I know Uriel's here, but anyone else? My defense, my apology in the Greek. My apology. And I want us to think really carefully about this this morning. Because every person who professes Christ has an apology to make has a witness to give. When I go to England later this year, it's really hard for anyone in my family to even relate at all to where I'm coming from as a Christian, never mind Seventh-day Adventist. And numerous occasions when I've been there, I've needed to make an apology, a defense. Why am I living this way? What was wrong with my life before I lived this way? Why do I give so much up to follow Jesus Christ? And, and if we put ourselves into Paul's sandals, what kind of Jew is this? Those and many more questions would be in the minds of this crowd. They saw Paul as a heretic, as a traitor to the faith. We view him quite the opposite, don't we? We look on him as a champion of Christianity. So let's work our way through his defense. And we'll stop in a number of places here and slow down to get the main point. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. So when they heard him speak in Aramaic, that's the language of Jesus, by the way. It's a dying language. And so there is re-education process going on to learn Aramaic. Now, I have a tough time learning Norwegian. I have a Norwegian wife. And the Norwegians that are here this morning uh, probably laugh at my Norwegian. Now, if I said Norwegian to you, you wouldn't laugh because you don't know Norwegian, right? How many want to learn Aramaic this morning? I'm sure it's not easy, but it, many in the crowd would speak that language, and he's obviously got their attention. They became quiet. And so Paul said, I am a Jew. Right from the beginning, he's making the point that he is a Jew, and he is a faithful Jew. That's really important, because as I said, 
many in that crowd, especially the ones from, who came from Ephesus, from Asia, would not believe that. They would believe just the opposite. And as I said, they would believe the opposite so much, they were ready to kill this man. I was brought up in this city, and under Gamaliel, a great teacher from the school of Hillel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Isn't there a place in the Scriptures that talks about zeal? Zeal is a good thing, but zeal without knowledge, that's a dangerous thing. So Paul, as edu highly educated as he was, he's sitting at the feet of this master teacher, Gamaliel, had the zeal without the true knowledge. Yes, very knowledgeable, but not the true spiritual knowledge. For example, here's a man that's learning every day and probably teaching to others eventually about the importance of the law, right? So if we did a study now in Galatians or Romans, some of those kind, that kind of literature, we would see that he would have a lot to say about the law. His enemies would say, you are working against Judaism and you are undermining our belief system, and that includes very much the role of the law. So the law is a big subject in Scripture. What did Paul miss? He missed the spirituality of the law. He belonged to, to Jewish people who majored on externals and neglected the internal. Isn't that the essence of the law? to love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All of your heart, internal or external. Starts internally. Before you can do anything in pleasing in God's sight externally, it has to come internally. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law of God. So he says there, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Imagine having that on your conscience. Imagine meeting the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road and thinking, whoa, talk about missing it and blowing it. So he arrested them. He had them condemned to death thrown into prison, breaking up families. I wonder what they did with the children. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained uh, letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, before we read his testimony, his witness, I want to throw something out to you. A number of times I've mentioned to you that there's, there's many things in the early church that Luke does not include. And as, as, as an inspired writer, I guess he has that option under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as a historian, as he's catalog, cataloging, and as, as a theologian, thinking through what he wants to emphasize. He's very selective. All the Bible writers are very selective. And then, and then he'll take something that 
maybe covers three years and just put it in a few words, just in passing. And then he'll slow down, which is what's happening now, and he'll give us three accounts of the conversion of Paul. Three times in one book. So you'd think if there's so much to say and such limited space to say it, why, oh why, does he give us his testimony three times? Now for me, one time would be enough. I can read it, I can think about it, I can get it with God's help. But three times, then I have to think, okay, what's this historian, theologian up to? Why is, what is he trying to emphasize? Why is it so important that it has to be mentioned three times? And I don't know fully the answer to that question. I have some ideas, some guesses. Maybe you could come up with a good suggestion. Let's go through it real quick. About noon, as I came near Damascus, anybody been to Damascus? I hear the airfares are pretty cheap this time of the year. There's a civil war going on. Probably not the best time to go. I'm trying to be funny, but you didn't get that one. But I've been to Damascus, and I've been on the, straight called, the street called Straight, where Paul was. I didn't see anything chiseled into the tree saying Paul was here, but I know I was pretty close to it. So he's on this road going into Damascus. Suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked I am Jesus of Nazareth. So he's just seeing this bright, bright light. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Imagine persecuting under the guise of religion the Lord of creation, the Lord of life. Uh, one name for him in this section is the righteous one. Was Jesus righteous? If he wasn't righteous, you and I have no Savior. We're dead in our sins. It's all over. No, he kept the law perfectly. He's the righteous one. My companions saw the light. They did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you've been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus. Why was that? because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Well, that'll get your attention. You meet the Lord of life in this blaze of glory, and then suddenly you realize you've persecuted him by persecuting his followers, and then you are in total darkness. It's amazing what God does to get our attention, don't you think? A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. This, of course, is important to emphasize to Jewish people who are about to kill you because you're a lawbreaker. Now, Paul was not a lawbreaker, and Paul actually had a very high value of the law, even though you might think he has some negative statements against the law. Why does Paul 
have seemingly negative statements about the law of God because people were misusing the law of God. So he believes, if we had to sum it up in a few words, that God's law is holy, just, and good. That's what Paul believes about the law. But if you try and take something that's holy, just, and good and use it in the wrong way, as though one can find salvation by one's law-keeping, for example, then Paul is vehemently going to take you on and deny that. So he is a law-abiding person, and he mentions Ananias as being the same. A devout observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews living there. That's in verse 12. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul. Interesting phrase. In what way was Paul a brother? Because he was Jewish? Or because he's a Christian? Receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you. Whoa. Didn't we just read a moment ago that this is the great persecutor of Christian families? Can you imagine what nast the, the nastiness of that? Just destroying whole families because they believe in this righteous Jew, Jesus. And now God has done what? What does the text say? I can't hear you. Chosen. I thought God just chose the good ones, not the bad ones, not the rascals. Well, God has his reasons why he chooses. The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to, <coughs> to see the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. Did you know that the Apostle Paul was literally tutored by Jesus? Now, Gamaliel might be a great teacher, but Gamaliel didn't teach Paul the spirituality of the law. Paul said, I never caught that until I understood the commandment, thou shall not covet. Then he realized that the law was demanding something internally, not just externally. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he can teach you real good, real well. So Paul was taught the gospel from Jesus. Paul had dreams, visions, trances. Some of them are going to be mentioned in this passage numerous times throughout his life. What was he doing in the, in the Arabian desert for, was it three years? quite a long period of time. See, there's many things we're not told. Maybe that's why we have a millennium in heaven, a thousand years to, to do some explaining there. You'll be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. All men. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall go where? into all the world. It'll start in Judea with these Jewish people. It'll go to Samaria with Samaritan Jewish people. But ultimately, it will go out of there, even if it takes persecution to get those Christians out of Jerusalem. 
if it takes persecution to get Paul to Rome, this gospel will go. This is one of the reasons why Luke has given us the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke too, but especially the book of Acts to show the success, the integrity of the gospel and Christianity. So you'll be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Here we go, Hugh. Get up and be what? Anyone excited about baptism? Now, Joe this morning in his class told a story about somebody, and if I understood the story correctly, is, is Joe here? All right, if I understood the well, Don, you were there. Wasn't this man drinking beer? I think he was drinking beer when he got baptized. And as he got dunked in the water, the preacher said, did you see God? He said, no. Is he down there? Some people get baptized alive. Right? We're supposed to get baptized dead to sin dead to this world, dead to the old persecuting, vindictive, bigoted way of life of Paul. And of course, he's ready. He's ready. Ananias, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, knows that this man is ready. Does it take a long time for somebody to get ready for baptism? We have some young people listening to to me this morning. It doesn't have to take a long time, but it does take the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to think there's something magical about water, and because some preacher puts pressure on us, we get baptized. There needs to be an open heart towards Jesus Christ and and a turning away, a renunciation We call that repentance, don't we? We have different words for it. A renunciation of the life of sin. And Jesus says, if if that process has happened, come, follow me. So get up a bit at times, wash your sins away. Praise God for that. Calling on his name. So when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into what? A trance. See how quickly these things come, dreams, visions, trances. Very much a, Christianity is very much a supernatural phenomena. It's not about religion and rules and regulations. It's about life in the Spirit. So if God sends some people to us who have 666 tattooed on their foreheads. I'm using an extreme example. How are we to relate to them? Embrace them. Love them. Point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're seeing a rascal getting converted, getting baptized. Not just that, but being given a mission, a vocation, a calling. And all of us have some kind of calling, do we not? To lift the Lord Jesus Christ up. Some of us have a preaching calling, have a teaching calling. Some of us have the gift of hospitality. Earlier, 
in one of the classes this morning, we heard about spiritual gifts. We should all know pretty much what our gifts are. And we should be exercising those gifts because we want the Anderson Church family to be strong, to be vibrant, right? And that can only happen if each man and woman, boy and girl, does their part. So he goes into this trance. The Lord again appears to him, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Do you ever feel that when you're giving your testimony about Jesus Christ, you're banging your head on a brick wall? Sometimes it feels like that. I mentioned earlier about going to England. It often feels that way. It seems that Whatever way I try, nothing quiet seems to get. The seed doesn't really seem to find that receptive soil. And so, if that's the case in Jerusalem, at this point, with these Jewish people, God knows our hearts, right? So he's telling Paul, get out of there. Because one door will close, but I'll bet you ten doors will open. So we're, we're, in a sense, not to become paranoid about hard hearts because we do not have the ability to soften those hearts. Now, I know there's some things we can do. We can lay an emphasis on Jesus. Biblically, we are told to do that. We can also lay an emphasis on grace. I believe that's biblical, too. We should show the importance of the law and, and the, uh, the fact that sin is a reality. It's not just a figment of someone's imagination. So there is a, what we call, the Puritans used to call the law work. We should do the law work. People should know that they're sinners, but they need grace. So we are to major on some of those things. But the reality is it's the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone that can soften that heart. And yes, He can use you and He can use me to drop those gospel seeds in there, but ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit to work to do that. So, He's been told to leave Jerusalem, in which He wanted so much to come to Jerusalem and has gotten so much trouble by being there. There's other work to do. They will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go. It's in the imperative. Hey, by the way, isn't it in the imperative to us too? Go into all the world and preach the gospel? It's not any more in the imperative for Paul than it is for you and me. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, he's given his story, his testimony, his witness, his defense. How are they going to respond? Well, Paul, we never thought of it that way. You're making a good point here. Let's give the guy a break. Do you think they responded that way? The crowd listened to Paul, 
until he said this. What is this? It's probably, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What is the problem with the Gentiles? What is the problem with the Jews and the Gentiles? What is the problem with the Jews hearing about the Gentiles? We have seen many, many times, and we'll see it right to, through the whole New Testament, this tremendous confusion, tension between Jews and Gentiles. Now, I admit, if you go around calling other people dogs, vermin, uh, you know, some people are not going to be too happy about that. And then, if you are a Gentile Roman soldier, for example, seeing these religious people who are from your own nationality, Jewish people, they're all Jewish, who's supposed to have the truth, supposed to be the remnant church, behaving this way, boy, that's pretty hard. Well, the crowd again go nuts. Rid the earth of him, they shout. He's not fit to live. Boy, I would have given him an A plus after that little witness. And they're going to give him an F. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust into the air, the commander, still confused, doesn't know what's going on, ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks and directed that he be flogged. Now, this flogging isn't pretty. Remember Jesus? He was flogged. Do you remember last week I gave you some parallels between the mission of Jesus and the mission of Paul? Perhaps this is another one. Even though Paul is not actually flogged, they were going to do it. They would have strips of leather with bone and, and other material, metal, in those, and they would whip them so badly that many people died from the flogging. So obviously we don't want that to happen to Paul. They ordered him to be flogged and questioned to order to find out why these people are shouting at him like this. It just doesn't make sense. And you know that's Luke's point. It doesn't make sense. Christianity is a legitimate way of living. The gospel really is good news. And unfortunately, many of these Jews just don't get it. So as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? No, it's not. And if you're the Roman commander and are found to be doing that, watch out. Maybe they'll do something even worse to you. And so the commander questions him, and Paul again repeats that he was a citizen. And of course, the Roman commander is totally alarmed about what they're doing to this man, even having him in chains without a reason, without a good cause, was not legit. So the next day, verse 30, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble, and then he brought Paul and had him stand before him. Now, who is Paul 
standing before. It starts with an S. No? Say it again. There you go. I'm, I, maybe I, I wasn't, maybe it's because you don't have this really, really clear mic, and, and I do. Sanhedrin. What? Didn't Paul used to be part of the Sanhedrin? Doesn't he know these people? Shouldn't he have a leg up here? Well, we're not sure about that. Many in the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. Some of them were Pharisees. Sadducees believed differently than Pharisees, as we will see. So Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I fulfill my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, high, at this the high priest Ananias orders, ordering those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. So that would have been a really strong Roman punch in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And the commentators don't quite know what to do with that. They said, this is where Paul lost it. I don't agree. I think he was making a prophetic statement. I think it was a true statement, a prophetic statement. God will strike you. Did God strike him? Well, not at this point, but later he did. You whitewashed wall. Didn't Jesus talk to the Pharisees that way? When they were getting to the point of committing the unpardonable sin? Maybe that's the time we need to, to, to tell it straight like it is. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? And Paul replies, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. Now, why is that? Is it because of the way this man is behaving? Is it because of Paul's poor eyesight? We think he had poor eyesight. Uh, we're not quite told the reason why. It is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in that. They kept only to the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, which are those, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, don't have a whole lot to say about resurrection. That's why we need the whole Word of God, the whole Old Testament, the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, to get a more complete picture. And we really don't get a, a really complete picture until the righteous one comes, Jesus. When he rose from the dead, then this doctrine of the resurrection became really, really big and much more, more clear to people. But it's clear that the Pharisees believed in this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that when we die, we all go to heaven? And it's interesting who goes to heaven. You can be mafioso. You could have plotted to kill or maybe killed lots of people. You're still going to heaven. 
You get the priestly benediction. You're going to heaven. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, the Bible teaches the resurrection of the dead, and it talks a lot about resurrection. There's a whole section in Corinthians chapter 15 about the importance of the resurrection of the dead. We're still living in a world 2,000 years later where people are totally confused about this. So God needs to use you and I to straighten them out. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees. The assembly was divided. The Sadducees says there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. Are there angels? How many angels do you find in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Not a whole lot. So you're going to have a distorted understanding of truth. We need the whole word of God. So angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. Now there you go. The Pharisees are standing up for Paul. Isn't it great what God can do? What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. That's the Sadducees. They can't wait to get their hands on this heretic and tear him to pieces. And so he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Don't you want to be a missionary for God? Hmm? Ah, some of you are not quite sure after listening to what Paul went through. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, this is the part I like. God, the great comforter, when this man is discouraged, depressed, down, Lord, did I blow it? Why did I come to Jerusalem? Did I make a mistake in coming to Jerusalem? What about this witness of the brethren wanting to tear me from limb to limb? And these Roman pagans, what are they supposed to think? What kind of witness is that? You know, everything we say and do is some kind of witness, isn't it? Everything. Even if we don't say anything. Our body language. When we refuse that cup of cold water or whatever it is, it's all a witness. Take courage, Jesus says, or it says the Lord here. It doesn't mention his name. Take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So this is a promise, this is a, an encouragement, a comfort, as I said, but it's also a prophecy. Paul, it doesn't matter what man does to you, you're going to Rome. That's part of my plan. That's part of my purpose. Does God have a plan for you? Does God have a purpose for you? You know, sometimes even in the really tough times, like a crowd trying to tear you from limb to limb, God's plans and God's purposes can be worked out. It's, it's amazing. It's mind-boggling. It's really one of the great themes of Scripture, the plans and the purposes of God. And it seems like plan A is blocked. Well, plan B kicks in. God always has a way uh, this week we were talking, uh, some of us were talking about prayer. 
And I quoted that statement, which some of you know. Prayer is the answer to some of the problems in life, to all of the problems in life. God can take the complicated, tangled web of this life of ours and just give us a straight path to Himself. God can do that. We have to learn to lean on Him. Paul, I do think Paul made some wrong judgments. He's not being punished for his wrong judgments. I don't believe that. And I definitely believe, as I said last week, that the leadership gave him some wrong advice. Probably did it with good motives, but it was wrong, wrong advice. And yet God can work through all of our mistakes. Anybody made any mistakes here this morning? Just a few? A few what? A few thousand? A few million? God can work through all of that. And if our heart is right with Him and we want to serve Him and honor Him, it doesn't matter if a number of men plot, take an oath to kill Him. We are not going to eat until we kill this man. How many men was that? Forty men. Doesn't matter if it was 400, 4,000, 4 million, 4 billion. God is going to get Paul to Rome because he has a purpose, he has a plan for Paul in Rome. Well, as the story finishes up in Acts chapter 23, we see the Romans taking charge of him. Hundreds and hundreds of men get him out of the city. Seems kind of comical in a way, hundreds and hundreds of men for one prisoner, but maybe there were a number of other prisoners too, and takes him to Caesarea. So he would be there, he'll be in Caesarea for a while, but eventually he will end up in Rome. And it's very, very exciting, though I'm kind of getting ahead of myself too. We're going to see Paul talking with, with people like Festus, Felix, and eventually according to Ellen White, Nero. So that's going to be really interesting when we get into some of those situations. What a great book, the book of Acts. Man, throw yourself into this book. Get some of that missionary spirit into your bones. Realize what these people have, have done to get the Word of God to you and me. And more importantly, what God can do in your life as he did in Paul's life. And no matter how many mistakes are made, God's plans and God's purposes for you will be fulfilled as you cooperate to the best of your ability with him. What's his plan? What's his purpose? He wants to bring us into his kingdom. He wants to spend eternity with you and me. But I don't deserve that. No, you don't. Neither do I. None of us do. But God in His grace and in His mercy and in His love has put His stamp of approval on us because we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, can you see the divine initiative in all of this? That's what Paul is saying. He said, look, I didn't, I didn't decide to become a Christian. I didn't wake up one morning and thought, yeah, it'd be neat to swap sides. 
God came down. It was a divine initiative. And that's how every conversion is. Everyone in this room that's been converted, whether it's a slow process, as you understand it, or a more rapid one, as in my experience, certainly as in Paul's experience, it's God at work taking the initiative, chiseling a little bit here, moving a little bit there, until the heart is ready to embrace Jesus. Jesus comes in via the Holy Spirit, and we're in. We're in. The rest of your life from that point on is understanding that you're in, trying to figure it out. How do you live this stuff? And God promises the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the gift of the church, pastors, teachers, all kinds of helps in the church to help us to grow in Christ. And of course, importantly, the Word of God. All of these are given to us so that you and I can stand with God in His glory. Man, I can't wait for that millennium period and do some talking to Paul. And then I also want to ask Luke some questions too, but we have to wait for that. Let's pray. Gracious God, be with every man, woman, boy, and girl here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that there's not one heart here this morning that's not converted, thoroughly born again. And if there is, Lord, bring that to that individual's attention so that they can turn to you and enjoy the peace which passes all understanding. And Lord, I believe, and even, even in this, this stormy trouble that Paul was in, when Jesus appeared to him, there was peace, there was comfort, there was tremendous encouragement for him. And he was faithful to the end. Help us to say the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.